Okay, this morning we'll, we'll be dealing with uh, chapter 20 of the 1689 uh, Confession of Faith. And this chapter deals with the gospel and the extent of its grace. The gospel and the extent of its grace. Now, it's, port- it's important that uh, I begin with an introduction to why this chapter was even placed in our confession. As I mentioned before, our confession pulls mainly from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the uh, mentality behind this is that the particular Baptists had no desire to reinvent the wheel. They did not find it necessary to rewrite the doctrines in which were well articulated in the Westminster. And in addition to that, they felt it necessary to show their commonality in the broader Reformed confession as well as their Catholicity with the Reformed tradition. And this is why most of what we read in our confession is very similar to the Westminster Confession, with the exception of our doctrine of baptism and church government. But when we get to chapter 20, we see that our confession was added. Uh, There was a chapter added to our confession, which is not actually in the Westminster Confession of Faith. This chapter was actually pulled from the Savoy Declaration of 1658. Now, the Savoy Declaration is a confession that was a modification of the Westminster uh, designed for congregational church polity. It was fit for congregational church polity. So if you can imagine a congregational or independent version of the Presbyterian church. And being that the particular Baptists believed that the local church is ecclesiastically sovereign, that is to say that church authority is found in the local church and not in the presbyteries or synods and general assemblies, they had much in common with the Savoy Declaration. And it is in this chapter that we see that. So, why did the particular Baptists and the Savoy Congregationalists feel the need to add this chapter? Especially as we consider the topic, the gospel and the extent of its grace. Did our confession not already cover the topic of the gospel? Is this just a reiteration of that topic? Well, let me answer that by reading the insert that is written in the Savoy Declaration. In the beginning of it, it says this. After the 19th chapter of the law, we have added a chapter of the gospel, it being a title that may not well be admitted in a confession of faith. In which chapter, what, are, what is dispersed and by intimation in the assembly's confession, with some little addition, is here brought together and more fully under one head. Now, what they're saying is that the purpose of this chapter was to summarize, concentrate, and supplement teaching already found in the Westminster relating to the gospel and the extent of its revelation. Now, it is generally understood that the reason why they needed to add a few more things on the subject of the gospel and to make this chapter was to refute some of the errors that many were making during that time. So they wanted to refute errors. And so you will see some of those as we go through each chapter and how they refuted uh, those uh, specific errors. We'll, We'll draw those things out a little bit. So with that being said, let's start by looking at paragraph one. Let me have someone read paragraph one for us. You can read it nice and loud so we all can hear. 
because the covenant of works was broken by sin and was unable to be the means of calling the elect and producing in them faith and repentance. In this promise, the gospel in its substance was revealed and made effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. Okay, thank you, Jeremy. <clears throat> so the paragraph begins by stating that the covenant of works was broken by sin. Now, this flows perfectly with what was discussed in the last chapter, which spoke about the moral law and the particular precept that God gave to Adam at the garden. Now, as we know, Adam violated that particular precept. And at that moment, he broke the covenant of works. This is where the fall came in. Adam, who was originally created upright, and we see that in Ecclesiastes 7.29, sinned against God and at that very moment lost his original righteousness. And by losing his original righteousness, became unable to fulfill the covenant of works. As such, the covenant of works was made unprofitable unto life. Romans 8.3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, he could no longer fulfill the covenant of works. And as chapter 6 says in the confession, men were made by their corruption utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. We see that in chapter 6, uh, paragraph 4. And by this, we learned that after the fall, man no longer were able to receive the reward of life through the covenant of works. But as we read on in the paragraph, God was pleased to proclaim the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman. Now, this promise of the seed was already mentioned in chapter 7, paragraph 3. And it is based on Genesis 3.15. Let me have someone read Genesis 3.15 for us. Okay, thank you. So this promise of a seed or an offspring who would bruise the head of the serpent is referring to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This promise here in Genesis is often called the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel. This is essentially the gospel proclaimed from the very beginning. So when the confession states that God was pleased to proclaim the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, that is to say that the gospel of salvation has been preached since the beginning. And God, the Father, who would use the proclamation of Christ, the seed of the woman, as a means of calling the elect and producing in them faith and repentance. And by calling the elect, the confession is speaking of effectual calling. It's speaking of effectual calling, which we learned about in uh, chapter 10, paragraphs 1 to 3. Now, this, paragraph, this promise of the gospel found in Genesis 3.15 was only a dim light at first, but the substance, 
but, but the substance, uh, namely Christ himself, brought about the effective conversion of salvation of sinners. The promise of it, if a person believed it, was then made effective in them unto salvation, even prior to the completion of Christ's work of redemption. Because of the substance of the gospel, uh, shadows prior, but the substance now has come. And this is how the Old Testament saints were actually saved. Romans 4.3 says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Men have always been saved in the same way and by the same gospel. Regardless of how dim this light may have been at first, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the gospel was revealed. In other words, every man who was ever saved was saved by the means of the gospel. Now, this goes against many who have said that prior to Christ's coming, people were saved in a different way. That understanding is a serious error. In fact, that understanding is actually heresy. It's not something you find in scripture. Okay, let's look at chapter, I'm sorry, paragraph two. Let me have someone read paragraph two for us, nice and loud. Thank you. Now, in the first paragraph, it stated that God was pleased to proclaim the promise of Christ as the means of calling the elect and producing in them faith and repentance. This is how God saved in the Old Testament and in the New. This is also the means in which he has, is saving people today. Now, what paragraph two is emphasizing is that God has not changed the means. The way that he has chosen to reveal the gospel since the beginning is through the word of God alone. <clears throat> it's through the word of God alone. The emphasis is on the exclusivity of the special revelation of the gospel. That's not exactly a new point in the confession as we've seen, but we look back and we see this mentioned in chapter uh, one, paragraph one, seven, uh, paragraph three, 10 paragraph one, and 14 paragraph one. But here it's stated more explicitly. And as I mentioned in the beginning, the purpose on why the Savoy Declaration and our confession has this chapter in it was to refute many errors that were circulating at that time. One of the errors was coming from the deist who wanted to do away with the supernatural concepts of revelation. They preferred to develop their understanding of God from natural law. In other words, they believe that salvation can be obtained through what is revealed about God and nature. We read in Romans 1 about God's revelation of himself and nature. And he says this, it's pretty clear here, uh, Romans 1, 19 and 21, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So the question is, can fallen men come to the knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ through mere observation of nature? And the answer is no, they can't. We do read that God reveals himself in nature, but only as a way to prove man rejects even the general revelation of God because they prefer sin over submission to him. This is why Romans 1 goes on to say that man is now without excuse, without respect to, with, with respect to being righteous. God has revealed the light of his nature, and yet man preferred the darkness. Now, when it comes to a kind of revelation that leads to salvation, this is something that God has chosen to give to whomever he desired to give. And this is with, and this is with the presupposition that he owes no one this revelation. God doesn't owe anyone special uh, revelation. <clears throat> and only the arrogant pride of a person would assume they deserve a chance after all the sins they have committed against God. Only pride assumes that. Now, with that said, it's important to take in the emphasis that's being made in this paragraph and how it is the word of God alone which reveals the gospel. So if you go back to chapter one, paragraph one of the confession, it indicates that the light of nature, the works of creation and providence are insufficient to convey the gospel. And so the gospel is only revealed by the word of God. In other words, no pilgrimage, no traveling the world to see God's beautiful creation, nor uh, meditation to seek the inner you, nor observing the piety of a monk, not even the so-called prayers of many who pray and yet are uninformed by the truth of God's word can receive salvation by those means. None of those are sufficient for receiving salvation. Now, <clears throat> nature does not reveal these things in which God himself and only God himself reveals through the means of his holy word. So this is what we call special revelation. Uh, as opposed to general revelation, this is special revelation. <clears throat> so this also answers the question about those in far off countries that have never heard the gospel. How are they saved? Are they saved through God's revelation of himself in nature? And the answer again is no, they're not. If anything, this only makes them guilty and without excuse. In other words, there is no such thing as an innocent person. Regardless if the gospel has never reached their country, the Bible teaches that all are guilty and do not seek after God. That's just the truth of scripture. And with that said, you must come, we must come to terms with the fact that God does not owe anyone any revelation of salvation in Christ. He does not owe us not one sermon. 
And yet he has graciously granted to us that grace. So understanding that is crucial to uh, having a right perspective and picture of God and his grace, which stirs thanksgiving in the heart. So we must praise God that he has chosen to reveal this word to us and that we've actually understood it for those who have. We have to give God thanks for that. Therefore, those of us who were once guilty, as well as now obligated by the grace of God to go and spread the gospel to all the nations. Paul made this plain in Romans 10, 14 to 17. Someone read this for us. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach to good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay, thank you. So one of my favorite passages is Luke 16, 27 to 31. This passage is a parable of Jesus where he tells of the rich man who died and went to a place of torment, or Hades. And in the story, the rich man in hell begs Abraham, who was in in the side of peace and blessing, a picture of heaven, he begs him to come out from the dead and to warn his five brothers about the horrors of the place he was. And notice what Abraham tells him at the end. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that they so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, father, Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Neither will they be convinced if someone were to rise from the dead. The term Moses and the prophets here essentially means the writing of the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, Abraham tells him that if they do not believe the word of God, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is to say that the things in which are, which are um, observable, whether they seem natural or supernatural, are ineffectual in salvation if it is not the word of God. So faith only comes through the gospel and does not come through general revelation, not so much as in a general or obscure way. As if to make the point crystal clear, the confession adds that the gospel is not present in general revelation in any degree. If general revelation does not in any degree reveal the gospel, then it is not possible that any person who lacks the revelation of Christ can be effectually called and therefore can never attain to faith and repentance. 
So this affirms the necessity for gospel preaching since the gospel is declared only in special revelation, which is the word of God alone, and not in general revelation, not even in the slightest degree. This is an important point, which unfortunately uh, we often overlook. Okay. With that, let's jump down to paragraph three. Let me have someone read paragraph three for us. The gospel has been revealed to sinners in various times and in different places, along with the promises and precepts to people who are granted this revelation are chosen solely according to the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. This choice does not depend on any promise to those who demonstrate good stewardship of their natural abilities based on common life received apart from the gospel. No one has ever done this, nor can anyone do so. Therefore, in every age, the preaching of the gospel to individuals and nations has been granted in widely varying degrees of expansion and contraction according to the counsel of the will of God. Okay, thank you. So we're about... So let's begin with the first sentence. It says, the gospel has been revealed to sinners in various times and in different places, along with the promises and precepts describing the obedience it requires. So here it seems that those who formulated this paragraph sought to emphasize that the gospel is essential for salvation. But there are also promises in addition to and and precepts for the obedience of believers. This matches what Matthew 28 says the Great Commission is. He says in Matthew 28, Jesus speaking to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The point here is that the revealing of the gospel along with all that Christ commanded comes to both nations and to individuals in various times and different places, but it doesn't stop there. Look what it says in the second sentence of this paragraph. The particular nations and individuals who are granted this revelation are chosen solely according to the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. Notice that the gospel does not come to every nation and to every single person before their death and judgment. Now, we know this because there have already been nations that have come and gone, as well as individuals who have come and gone, and yet they have passed away people and nations without hearing the gospel. It's a hard truth that modern believers at times who focus on fairness rather than God's sovereignty uh, get, get wrong. It is indeed a duty that the church preach the gospel to the whole world, but this is only done by God's enablement. At the end of the day, it is in God's sovereign hands which nation or persons receive gospel preaching. We can see the hand of God sovereignly directing Paul in his missionary work. 
in Acts 16, 7, it says, And when they had come up to uh, Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. This is a reminder to us that while man may plan, God is the one ultimately enabling and directing. God grants by his sovereign will which nations or individuals the gospel is revealed to. He does not add to his sovereign will the actions of men as the reason why he chooses one nation over another or chooses one person over another to receive the gospel. For example, Europe and England did not attract God's attention by their improvement, by the improvement they, uh, made by their hands uh, or themselves that warranted the gospel coming uh, in the Reformation. They didn't do anything to attract uh, God's favor upon them that the Reformation may come there. We see the same thing with Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 7 says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. The contrary, you were the fewest. Or of the New Testament believers, we see in 1 Corinthians 1, 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful not many were of noble birth. By this, we see that the gospel never comes to a nation, people, group, or person because of something good in the nation, people, or person. If that were the basis, the gospel would never come to anyone. You see how thinking in those terms disqualifies everyone. <clears throat> It comes because it was God's sovereign good pleasure and for that reason alone. God's eternal decree is the first cause of all things, including the gospel coming to the land, any land, any people, or any person. Now, this doesn't mean that God is in heaven sort of rolling a dice and flipping coins uh, to see who he will elect and to, to, to see who will be elect and who will not. God's election is absolutely conditional, but only in the sense that one chooses that, that his choices are on the conditions of his own wisdom. It isn't random selection. There is reason for his choices, and the reason for his choices is that they are based on his own infinite wisdom. But it is important to note that there isn't even a smidgen of a reason found in us at all that God would choose any. So, in summary, we learned that in all times, gospel preaching was and is only granted according to God's sovereign will. And whether the gospel comes to a large amount of people or the gospel is proclaimed to a small or narrow quantity of people or anything in between, it is according to the counsel and will of God. Now, this shouldn't stop us from what? Preaching and proclaiming it to any and as many as we can. 
Yet we know that ultimately God is the one that grants this means of grace to whomever he chooses, uh, wherever he chooses, and at whatever time he chooses. That is to say, if you are an unbeliever and you are hearing God's word either now or in some sermon today, you are blessed with the grace of God to even hear the word. And so the encouragement, uh, the admonishment is, do not harden your heart. And if you are saved today, you should be thankful that God has revealed these things to you. For we are undeserving sinners, and God owes nothing to us, not one sermon. Okay, let's jump down with that to paragraph four. Let me have someone read paragraph four for us. Okay, thank you. Now, the point of this paragraph is to explain that a person who was not born, uh, who was not born again, is in a state of spiritual deadness. So let's look at some passages that speak on this. I'm going to ask you guys to help me read some of these verses. Let me have someone read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Okay, thank you. So it's pretty clear here. Um, Paul doesn't sort of mince words when he says among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It doesn't say that um, we just sort of had a falling out with God or we, we disagree with God over some point. He says we were by nature children of wrath. And then let me have someone else read Ephesians 4, 18 for us. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Okay, thank you. So again, the articulation of man's hardness of heart. <coughs> By nature, we have a hardened heart to uh, God's law, his, his precepts, who he is. We have a hardened heart towards our creator. And so we do not naturally submit. <clears throat> And then uh, 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So with these passages in mind, we see that you, if you are spiritually dead in your sins, the gospel is only an outward means of revealing uh, Christians, I'm sorry, if you are dead in your sins, the gospel is only an outward means of revealing uh, um, to Christians saving faith. 
That is to say that when the gospel is proclaimed to a spiritually dead person, it is only noise to them. Now, this is the case. <clears throat> this is the case unless the Holy Spirit takes those words of truth and through them brings that dead person to life and spiritual regeneration. Uh, God does that through his effectual calling in the gospel. That is what this paragraph means when it states that to be born again, brought to life, or regenerated, those who are dead in trespasses also must have an effectual, irresistible work of the Holy Spirit in every part of their souls to produce in them new spiritual life. Without this, no other means will bring about their conversion to God. Now, this is the point of the whole chapter. That the extent of the, the grace of God and the revelation of his gospel is limited, uh, the means, uh, is limited to the means chosen by God, namely his word. God alone has limited the means to his word for uh, drawing people savingly to himself. But also to only those whom God has ordained for the Spirit to grant such salvific revelation to. God has limited the means through which he will effectually call someone, and he has limited those who he would regenerate through those means. In concluding, the Congregationalists and the Savoy Declaration said that it is important to include in a confession of faith a chapter dedicated to the gospel. Our 1689 confession is, in my opinion, enriched for, enriched for adding this chapter. And even though it is an accumulation of what is already said in previous chapters of the confession, and with the issue of deism, which denied that God was involved personally, or providentially in the outer working of this world, the men who put together the confession greatly clarified for us in this chapter that the gospel shouldn't be understood as a message which saves by the mere mechanical preaching of it, but that God is ultimately the one who is in control of the fate of man, and that even our preaching of his powerful word is dependent on God's personal, supernatural, and irresistible power working inwardly to convert souls to Christ for salvation. And these are glorious truths that show how big and purposeful God is. And we ought to count the proclamation of his word as a tremendous privilege, even while confessing that the gospel and the extent of its grace is according to God's sovereign will and his holy standard. May we rejoice in the truth of Psalms 115.3 that our God is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that the extent of your grace in the gospel has included us undeserving sinners. Thank you for revealing your truth to us. We truly do not deserve it, and we pray that your grace to us not only calls us to worship you forever, 
but that it would motivate us to share your word to the lost. And may we never take for granted the blessing of the fact that we get to enjoy your word preached often while many do not. May we receive your word with eagerness and thanksgiving. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.